Welcome to the War Room. We've got a, a little JFK conspiracy talk for you today. We had on Mr. Hornberger a few episodes back. I'll link to that in the show notes. And I reached out some, to some folks and said, hey, listen, I'd love to hear the other side of this argument, which is exactly what we have for you today. But first, let's pay them bills. Where do you get your hosting from? You should know by now. Bluehost, RyanRaySenior.com slash hosting. If you do that, send me the receipt and I will give you free publicity on this podcast. Okay, now, let me just talk here for half a second. My guest is Michel Gagné. I am terrible with names. I think he hopefully, (laughs) hopefully understands it, but he came to me from a former guest, Mel Ayton. And so we'll link to Mel's podcast and books in the show notes as well. But Michelle has written a book, Thinking Critical Critically About the Kennedy Assassination. We'll link to that in the show notes as well. Okay, buckle up. We're going to cover a lot of Kennedy assassination stuff and actually talk about the real conspiracies that people should be curious about with the Kennedy assassination. Welcome to the War Room, Michelle. How are you doing? I'm doing great. It's nice to be on, Ryan. Okay, well, let's give a l- little bit of behind the curtains here. We had on uh, Jacob Hornberger uh, a month or two ago, and I reached out to a mutual connection of ours, uh, Mel Eaton, and said, hey, Mel. Uh, Jacob came on. He said a lot of stuff. I'd love for someone to come in and just give the other side. And he goes, well, I'm not the guy for that, but Michelle is. And so that's how you've, um, you've arrived here. So thank you for your time and uh, Mel to the introduction. Uh, Mel's a great guy. I haven't met him in person yet, but he wrote a very nice review of my book on Amazon at a time when I was getting these one-star reviews from very angry people who hated LBJ uh, and clearly had not read my book because they put these reviews like three days after uh, it was actually released. So I don't think they had time to read 500 pages in three (laughs) days. Um, So, uh, and, and then, and then, you know, I think Mel who knows this stuff quite well, uh, he's actually written a book similar to mine just recently I haven't had a chance to purchase it yet. Uh, and, and he was able to recognize that the research I did was actually uh, quite well supported by academics, by other people who have done investigations and do ballistics and things like that. So rather than supporting a particular conspiracy worldview, uh, I try to not just attack certain facts, because I think a lot of previous books that were trying to debunk conspiracy theories about Kennedy were always saying, well, that's what they say, but that's wrong. And here's why, like kind of a lawyer's debate. And since I teach critical thinking, uh, I'm a historian, but I'd spend more time teaching philosophy these days. Uh, I thought it'd be good to look more at the logic of conspiracy theories. Uh, the facts too, there's a lot of stuff about the the Kennedy administration. Uh, but I thought it's really important to under, to teach or to show the process of argumentation. And as we were talking before the show started, how sometimes the logic goes wrong, even if the facts are right. Yeah. And so I'm glad you brought that up uh, the way that you did, because, um, you know, if you take any conspiracy, whether it's, uh, you know, let's take the moon landing, for instance. OK, yeah. obviously, I'm not a rocket scientist. I didn't graduate college. OK, so I can't do any of the math, not a single bit of the math, to figure out whether or not those calculations are accurate. So I have to depend on someone telling me whether or not those things are factually true or not. And then I have to trust that they are actually telling me the truth. They could be lying to me. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's, 
where are you coming on this debate? We're going to talk about the Zapruder film. I am not qualified. Someone was asking me, one of the listeners, what I thought. I said, well, I'm not qualified to actually speak on whether or not you could actually doctor the footage or not. I have no, I have no clue. Um, there are certain logical things. And I, and I, I try to point those out during the interview, but there are certain things that you can question. And so I do find that too many people, wherever you come into these debates, they're not actually experts on the subject matter at hand. And so you're, you're simply just trusting one side or the other who, who presents a better case, which is not always who's right. And so, so I want to unpack that for a second. Um, perhaps you are a you know ballistics expert or, or something like that, but how do you go through understanding who is a credible source for the information that you're going to present in your books? Okay. Um, well, first of all, I'm, I'm in your position in terms of things like ballistics, medical evidence. I'm not an expert on those things. Uh, my background is in history. So I approach this as a person who used to be a conspiracy theory believer, uh, but in the process of doing my job, uh, I realized that a lot of my assumptions were wrong. So I sometimes call myself a, uh, a recovering conspiracist. And um, as a historian, I, I knew the 60s pretty well. You know, I, I specialized uh, Quebec independence, civil rights movements, not just in Canada, the United States, but across Europe. So the 60s itself was of an interest for me. I think because I was interested in the Kennedy assassination and then it branched out in these other things. So the chapters in my book that deal more with the history of the Kennedy administration, I think that's where I'm using my, my general knowledge and research background. Uh, a lot of the other chapters, I did have to do a lot of research into ballistics and things like that. And it really comes down to trying to identify what, what is the type of expertise you need here. Uh, a lot of people automatically, um, mistrust the government or they mistrust academia and the truth is there are some good and bad people in both those fields there are good and bad researchers uh, in these different fields so uh, a lot of it comes down to consensus uh the type of um uh the the the, the soundness of the person's own work their reputation for truth telling uh it also has to do with how they treat other people i think when people start screaming at each other or bad-mouthing each other, uh, as my dad used to say, uh, you know they've ran out of arguments. So sometimes a person's poise, their character, says a lot about their their how trust trustworthy they are. Uh, okay, yeah. just real quick, let me interject there. So you said that you're a recovering conspiracy theory believer. <laughs> yeah. And I, I want to unpack that for half a second here. Okay. Because I, I know me and you were talking offline, but for the audience's sake, and then you can respond. You know, my general thesis on just about any of these topics is um, – you know, I'm not a historian. Uh, I've read a lot of history. Governments have done terrible things. So I, I don't want to dismiss something on the fact on the fact that, hey, it's government. Therefore, they couldn't have done it. These are good people. Um, also, I don't want to say that just because it is government that they did do it. I want to yeah. say that it's po it's within the realm of history that governments do terrible things and they do great things. So therefore, it's possible. Um, and let's take a look at it. And so I don't think that's a conspiracy theorist mindset. That's just a, hey, I'm not sure what's going on here. And it would be, if I just blindly trusted either side of that equation, that would be where the, where the ditches are. And I don't want to be there. And so if you look at something like, um, oh, what was it? Uh, Operation Paperclip? No. What was the one where they brought in the German scientists, right? And so they brought in all these German uh, Yeah, that was Paperclip. Paperclip, yeah. right. So they bring in all these German scientists. Now, is that a conspiracy theory? I don't know if you'll call it a conspiracy theory. Is it really weird? Is it really bizarre? Is it something that they probably did under cloak and dagger so that the general public didn't fully recognize what's going on? Yes. Would the general public gone crazy, brought these Nazis in? Probably so. 
Um, and so that's a that's just a factual thing that happened in history. Um, that doesn't necessitate anything. It's just yeah. it happened. So where do you how, do you agree with that synopsis of how to think about these things, or would you push back? Where are you at, just for the, the audience's standpoint? Um, you know, sometimes uh, governments do conspire. I think the more familiar you are with specific cases, and let's say like Watergate or MK Ultra, uh, what's another famous one? Um, you know, a lot of people sometimes uh, talk about the Tuskegee experiments, Tuskegee experiments mm-hmm. as a conspiracy. Now, a lot of these things, and uh, pa- I think Operation Paperclip, a similar one, you have a major breach of ethics, right. uh, but you don't have this grand, uh, this grand plan to take over the world or to keep. Uh, the entire, uh, you know, um, population subdued by mind controlling them. Sure. Uh, even if MK Ultra was an attempt to mind control people, it was done defensively, thinking the Chinese were already doing that, and the Amer- the, you know, the CIA was rushing to see if it is possible uh, to engineer a person's memories uh, or or their thoughts uh, to turn them into an assassin. So in a way, it was for them to see if they could get to that ability, like the arms race before the the soviets and chinese could right. be able to use mind control techniques so a lot of government conspiring comes out of a form of fear or paranoia um either for legitimate national security purposes or just because that's what they do uh they are always trying to find contingency plans to make sure that uh the country they're defending or or whatever uh uh is not susceptible to to various enemies that's why there's so much uh, uh classified materials that when it gets declassified you go is that all it was you know there is a certain culture of silence yeah. out of fear that it could be used somehow against the government right a lot of documents about kennedy were classified for a lost time and then it turns out it was a tax return or mm-hmm. because it contained a name of a person who had been an informer of the cia back in the 50s but they still have family around in another country who could be a threat right so sometimes a lot of that secrecy is understandable sometimes it's not but as an historian you have to teach yourself that at that particular moment in time not knowing the future that we know uh people were sometimes doing things that were illegal and i'll give you a good example that's when kennedy's body was taken from uh parkland hospital to to washington because the secret service did not know who was attacking the the president and if there was going to be more assassinations so they had to get the hell out of Dodge with the new president who said, I'm not leaving without Mrs. Kennedy. Mrs. Kennedy said, I'm not leaving without Jack's body. And so the Secret Service says, we're taking everybody. And it was illegal, but under the circumstances, for national security reasons, they were just doing their job. Yeah, okay. So that's a great point there. Um, and what you're saying, you know, the motivations of what's going on, I think that's that's we had to be very careful to start. Uh, even if it's written down what they think that they were thinking, they can be, so you get into motivations. It's very, it's very tough to figure out. Um, you know, is it just you know um, they they were they're trying to protect national security, or were they just being um, you know evil? That, that, so, so that's a, I'm I'm with you there on this point about getting the body out, right? So this is a great example of this story. Which you go if you think it's a conspiracy, then it means well, what else would they have done with the body? Yeah, they must exactly. have gotten the body out so that no one could have asked questions. However, if you're like well, if you've ever been in any crazy scenario of, you know, what, a thousandth of the less magnitude of this, because this would be very, you know, no, no matter what our, uh, the worst trauma we've gone through, um, relative to thinking that your country may go into war, nuclear war <laughs> at the time, you know, 
the rules change. And we see that throughout government, right? Even in crisis, they, they, they change the rules or ignore the rules. So it's just as plausible that the secret, like what you said about the Secret Service, they're just responding in real time going, hey, we don't care what the rules are or we don't know or whatever. And so we, we're just getting out of here. Um, and that's Which is their job, right? Their right. job is to take a bullet unless they can get out of town first. It's not to close up windows and seal um, uh, you know, manholes in, in, in the road. That's meant to be the local police's job. So the, the Secret Service can be accused of many things, but on the 22nd of November, they really did their job. Uh, they tried as best they could, given the fact that Kennedy did not like to be surrounded by uh, by agents. He wanted to be a man of the people, so they were not running on the side of his limousine. They were on the back. And constantly you can see in films and pictures, people like Clint Hill, one of the Secret Service men, who was assigned to Mrs. Kennedy's protection, he's constantly jumping onto the back of Kennedy's limousine during that motorcade and kind of told to drop back because Kennedy did not want to have uh, this kind of uh, banana republic appearance of being surrounded by uh, guards all the time. Right. I'm not blaming Kennedy for dying, but it took a long time for these Secret Service men to actually say, look, it's really hard to defend Kennedy uh, because he was uh, he liked to get into crowds. Uh, he, he liked to to meet people face to face. And that made it a lot harder for them to be able to assess threats. And I'll link to the book in the show notes, but in Mel Eaton's book, uh, protecting the presidential candidates. I'm looking at it across the room so I get the name right. Um, he talks about LBJ after the assassination and how he was even at times, um, or RFK, how even after times they, they wanted to wade into the crowd. They wanted to do these things. Yeah. So these are guys, um, it's interesting because these are guys who, uh, at least LBJ theoretically was in on the on on this, depending on how you believe it uh, or not. Um, but as soon as Kennedy's shot, within nine months, they're in open cars, they're standing up. And so... Um, it does kind of give you a, a window into yeah. how the politicians at the time viewed the risk. And, and it seemed like RFK, from what I remember, was, you know, kind of fatalistic, like, if they get me, they get me, but I'm not going to not do what I'm going to do. And so it puts yeah. the Secret Service in a tough spot. Eisenhower was a military man. He never rode an open top limousine because he knew about snipers. Uh, Kennedy didn't care so much. And there's a lot of things we can go into, but Kennedy from a young age always had some um, physical ailments. A lot of people didn't know. So he had this kind of mentality that if I die tomorrow, I die tomorrow. Who cares? Uh, and he was a bit flippant uh, with his own need to be protected. Uh, after the Kennedy assassination, of course, no, no other president was riding in an open top limousine. But Kennedy did it all the time. He did it in Tampa. He did it in Hawaii. In my book, I even show he did it in Berlin and he did it in Ireland. So this was a standard operating procedure for the Kennedy administration to, to have people see their man. Now, I, I think in a sense, he's like a Barack Obama, but Obama was smart enough not to put himself at risk. Although Obama, interestingly enough, went to do the podcast with Mark Marin uh, over in Los Angeles in the suburbs there back uh, when he was president. And uh, I remember Mark Marin sharing the story about secret servicemen with AR-15s on his roof and on his garage. And, you know, everybody, everybody down his street thought there was some kind of military occupation. Uh, but still, see, Obama drove out to the suburbs to meet a popular podcaster because that was how that was his currency. Right. If he was not talking to his people directly on social media and things like that, then he felt he wasn't connecting. And Kennedy was certainly that kind of politician. And there's no social media back then. So you got to go in public. You got to be visible. Yeah, I just want to clarify one thing. You said there wasn't an uh, open limo, limo but but our LBJ and RFK did ride an open limo 
within less of a year after Candy's assassination. Uh, I don't know if they did or not, but I know that uh, I don't think um, Johnson refurbished the limousine, the SS100X that was Kennedy's limousine, which was not bulletproof before. They made it bulletproof. They made a whole bunch of changes to it, and still LBJ didn't want to travel in it. Uh, so if he did travel in open-top limousines, it was not to the frequency that Kennedy did. Yeah, um, I'm quoting from uh, Michael Beschlus. Uh, Michael okay. Yeah, so he's got a he's got a thread on it um, that with a picture of LBJ and RFK standing in the back of a limousine. Um, um, Eleven months after 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 Dallas, he says. Okay, that's possible, but those guys did not like each other. So my guess is they're right. not right <laughs> together in cars, no matter what kind of car. Uh, they were not Thelma and Louise. They certainly yeah, yeah. were political opponents, and Bobby never liked um, uh, Lyndon and, and and vice versa. Okay, so let's get into the Zapruder film specifically. Um, okay. I want to talk about that, uh, and then I have some other uh, general questions about the JFK stuff. Okay. Um, so the Zapruder film, from what I remember from Mr. from uh, Hornberger, uh, Jacob Hornberger's, um, is the film is taken um, from Zapruder, uh, mm-hmm. then it's taken to, I think he said DC, where they edit it, and then they put it um, in, in the Times within the week or whatever it was. Okay, and so his okay. his claim is that the Zapruder film and the autopsy photo are both edited to sh- not show, if I remember correctly, a hole in the back of Kennedy's head. I think that was okay. his claim, so I'll let you start wherever you want to on that, but that's okay. kind of the claim that I'm curious what do you think he got wrong. Okay, so there are two major problems here. One thing is uh, he sins by omission. He doesn't talk about the chain of custody of the film. And the other thing, whether he's aware or not, which has been thoroughly proven and debunked, is the film itself carries um, the footprint of authenticity. Uh, And that was uh, the Zavada report written in 1998 as an addendum to the assassination, the um, review board, the the ARRB, the Assassination Records Review Board, that uh, Douglas Horn, whom he talked all about uh, on his on your podcast, uh, was part of. So l- let me start with the first one, uh, the chain of custody. So Abraham Zapruder is a uh, Russian-born Jewish man. He came to the United States. I don't know at what age, but he became an entrepreneur. Uh, he ran a dressmaking business from the Daltex building, which is just across the street from the Texas Books uh, Depository. He was intent on going to see Kennedy's uh, motorcade that afternoon, but did not bring his camera to work that day. And he shared this information. He said he was going to go see the the motorcade. And I think it was Marilyn Sitzman, his assistant, his assistant who accompanied him in Dealey Plaza, who says, oh, go get your camera. Because Abraham Zapruder liked to make films. He was an amateur filmmaker. Uh, so compared to a lot of the other films there in Dallas, it's not just a better quality film because he was closer. He was also better, uh, you know, had a better idea of how to handle a, a camera. So uh, he goes back home, gets his camera and brings it back for the motorcade uh, that came through Dealey Plaza at 1230. So he's standing up on a concrete abutment. And since he suffers a vertigo, uh, Marilyn Sitzman stands up beside him on the abutment. I've been there just a few weeks ago. Um uh, it's 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 kind of a just a little concrete wall. There's not a lot of room for other people to stand there. There's just the two of them. And he's very close to that uh, so-called picket fence where some conspiracists claim there was an other shooter. If there had been a shooter there, both Sitzman and Zapruder would have noticed these really loud reports 
right be- beside them, which they did not. Uh, Sitzman claimed she heard shots coming from the book depository area. Zapruder said there was too much reverberation. He didn't know from where, but he was pretty sure it wasn't from right beside him. So he takes this film that is now, you know, uh, known worldwide as kind of like the first uh, snuff film of a president, I guess. Uh, and he takes it to his office a block away, puts it in a safe. And uh, in the process of him, I, I mean, he he went, he had a very difficult time processing what had just happened. He was a great admirer of Kennedy. Uh, I, I presume, you know, with with a lot of uh, the history of his family and and, and ancestors in Nazi Germany and Russia, uh, you know, this kind of violence is kind of like, oh, no, not again. There's always fear of anti-Semitism, whatever it might be. Uh, and a local reporter is trying to find, I forget his name, but it's trying to find out who was taking pictures and films at the scene. Within about an hour of the assassination, this reporter shows up at Abraham Zapruder's office in the Daltex building with Secret Service agent Forrest Soros. And Soros is the, uh, I forget his exact title, but he was like the director of the Dallas office of the Secret Service. So they ask if they can see the film. But of course, the film is in the camera. It's undeveloped. So they say, well, there's a local TV station, WFAA. Let's go there and maybe they can develop it for us. They go to WFAA together, Secret Service, journalist, and Abraham Zapruder. And I believe that Zapruder or Zapruder, I think he pronounced it the latter, but his, his, his granddaughter, who's in the news recently, she says Zapruder. So I never know how to pronounce the name. So anyways, I'm, I'm, so you know, I'm from Texas and Louisiana. I don't say anything right. So <laughs> <laughs> you're good. You're good. I, I'm trying to pronounce it like the uh, whatever the Russian way would have been. So, so I, I don't know what he pronounces. Yeah. Like. Before you Mo- go, most go, Americans me, say Zapruder. Right. So let me make sure I'm following along. Uh, yeah. Zapruder, Zapruder takes the shoots the video, goes back to his office. Um, a reporter and Secret Service show up, correct? Yeah. Within an hour, like within an hour of the crime. Okay. Um, and they go together with Zapruder. Now, I don't know if his lawyer is with him, but his lawyer says, make sure you stay with the film because his lawyer is thinking copyrights. You know, if the film gets out of your possession, it's no longer your film. So you have to make sure you stay with the film. Also, Four Sorrels of the Secret Service also agrees because he's thinking, okay, chain of custody. Unless we have an exact chain from the, when the film was filmed until it appears as evidence in a court case, uh, there, there could be a problem there. So both of them agree that Abraham Zapruder is going to stay with his film throughout the process of developing it. So they go to WFAA. At WFAA does not have the required technology to change this eight millimeter film uh, into, I guess, a 16 millimeter or whatever to put on TV, nor to develop it. But they say, since he's here, could we interview Mr. Zapruder? So Abraham Zepruder gives a very short interview on WFAA where he describes, you know, basically what you see on the film. The 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 was it the uh, the right uh, above his ear part of the head uh, exploding out and Kennedy kind of falling forward and falling back or something like that. Um, So it's very interesting because here he's only reciting this from memory, from what he saw, not from what the film says. Yeah, he does it, not it, talk it about was... a blowout in the back of the head, and he does not describe the stuff that Mr. Uh, Hornberger describes. Right. It, it just, just to, I mean, this should be obvious for the listeners, but as I'm thinking through this, you know, today you can rewatch anything within seconds and go, oh, this is what it said. But yeah. that's just not the case. So that's right. Theoretically, 
he couldn't he might not have recorded anything at the time of this interview because he doesn't know the film could have been damaged exactly. or whatever he doesn't he actually doesn't know yeah. what's on the film he could have had it aimed the wrong direction whatever so exactly. uh, it's just just to make this point clear that he has no idea it's impossible for him to know what is actually on the film because of what the technology was at the time exactly so he's on the record describing what he saw not what he filmed in a sense he saw it through the lens but nonetheless before the film is exposed to anybody including himself and same thing, a lot of people give uh, sworn affidavits to the police, to the local sheriff's office about what they saw long before there's a Zapruder film anywhere available. So he followed, then they go to the local Kodak um, uh, plant because they have the technology to develop a uh, an eight millimeter film. And that's where the film, they make three copies, um, for the one for the FBI, two for the Secret Service, and they're first generation copies. And I don't know if I can share screen with you, but in my book, I have a famous picture of the Zapruder film with the sprocket hole area. And this is very important because the first generation copies contain um, extra images that bled into the sprocket hole area of the film. If you project a Super 8 film with a projector, you don't see the sprocket hole area. You only see kind of the rectangle of the film, but there's more information on there in between the sprocket holes on the left side. So the first generation copies have those um, those extra parts of the frame on them. That's how you know that it was a first generation copy. And, and so Later, just real quick, so yeah, maybe you're going here. Future, as you go along, there'd be less of that. You're going to argue, I guess. Is that what you're saying? Uh, so like, uh, well, what happens is bootleg copies will not reproduce them. Right. They often came from. Uh, well, F there were like secondhand FBI copies circulating. Then there were bootleg copies that were made from the, um, the Zapruder film that uh, Jim Garrison would subpoena in 1968 to try to accuse Clay Shaw, a New Orleans businessman, of having conspired to murder Kennedy. Now, Jim Garrison's trial failed utterly, although that's not what Oliver Stone would tell us. Um, but that's where the film... Uh, I, I have to go back to Time Magazine in a bit, but that's he subpoenaed it from Time Magazine and he showed it in court in 1968. And then some of his assistants, some of them were unpaid conspiracy theorists who came to help his, uh, his investigation, people like Mark Lane. Hmm. They made bootleg copies and they spread around various universities. Right. So, so no one really saw the film till 1968, uh, at least as a motion picture. So there's certain things on this eight millimeter film that you can tell the more of this bleed over, I think if you called it, the more of this that it has, the closer to the original it's going to exactly. be. Exactly. Less it has. So if, if I were to pull up a eight millimeter film today and had none of that bleed over, we'd know this is multiple generations away. That's right. That's right. So, uh, so Zapruder has the original copy within three hours, I think of the assassination, maybe four or five, there are three first generation copies made and they're given to the secret service the Secret Service gives a copy to the FBI. These, I believe, are the copies of the people in Washington who saw that film during the weekend. Um, the original film went back home with Zapruder. Now, there may have been a fourth copy, and this is something that was revealed more in the last 10, 15 years. The Zapruders seem to have kept a copy to themselves and never told anybody about it. So I don't know if that's the dirty little family secret that... Um, Mr. Hornberger was talking about. I remember he said he figured out the, the dark taboo of the Zapruder family. I, I didn't read his book. Uh, I might eventually. Yeah, I think uh, I think what he's getting at is that they they 
they knew the film was doctored and they didn't say anything, but I couldn't. No. It couldn't be. It couldn't be. And that's what no, I think. I think that's. His, well, yeah. I, think, I think that's what he's arguing, though. Okay. Understood I, that, I, that the family knew the film had been doctored, and, he, and Zapruder never said anything about it. Okay. I think, well, I, I listened to some interviews with Alexandra Zapruder uh, to prepare for this interview, and she makes no hint of that. So I don't know that she believed that. If she did, she didn't give any hint uh, of that happening. So maybe that was what he thinks is their dark secret. But their dark secret appears to be that he kept an extra copy of himself after he sold the original to Time Life uh, on the very next day. Mm -hmm. So you have to understand that if this film was doctored, it would have to have been doctored before these first-generation originals, uh, these first-generation copies were made later that same afternoon. That really just gives you a window about four hours to doctor the film because now there's multiple copies going around. And there's an original that was given to Time Life, which remained in their vaults until 1968, although they did print many of the frames. They never printed it. They never showed it as a full film. And they never published frame 313, which is the famous one where you see this jet of blood and you know, brain tissue going up into the air in a kind of a forward, upward projection from Kennedy. That picture's in my book. Um, I got it from the, the, the Sixth Floor Museum in Dallas. Um, so Time Life buys the rights to this film on Saturday, November 23rd. It's the out-of-camera original. Uh, the reason that Abraham Zepruder sold it to Life is because there was an entire gaggle of reporters trying to get their hands on this film. Once they heard they had it, they wanted to see it. Many of them did see it in Zapruder's office with his lawyer there, with the Secret Service, the FBI. Uh, Dan Rather is one of the people who sat there, uh, former CBS anchorman. And Dan Rather was sent with orders to get that film, whether he had to buy it or steal it. Uh, he wanted to get his hands on that film. And he's one of the people that Abraham Zapruder was afraid of. I mean, that night he had nightmares about the assassination. He was afraid that people would use the film as a kind of a snuff film. He said in his um, Warren, um, his Warren uh, Commission um, testimony that he had nightmares for, for weeks, but particularly the night of the assassination, that people were lining up in Times Square, New York, to watch the Zapruder film of Kennedy getting shot in the head. Okay. So he was profoundly disturbed with the idea that what he had filmed was going to contribute to becoming some kind of a snuff film about a president that he admired. Okay, so let me just uh, interject here for half a second. So Zapruder has the film. There's yeah. three to four copies made. It doesn't that doesn't necessarily matter. I don't think for this point. Uh, and these are made within four ish hours after the assassination. So to doctor the film you would have to have doctored it in those four hours before the first generations are made because once or yeah or doctor and replace at least four copies yeah or yeah oh that's yeah and and the secret fifth one that zapruder kept to himself without telling anybody right so you yeah so what i'm getting at is if you have time you said has the actual original the fbi and the secret service have these uh these copies if you just played all of those at the same time and they show the same thing, then you would have necessitated that either A, they swapped out all four or five copies, as you mentioned, or that they doctored the original before um, the FBI and Secret Service got their hands on it. Yeah, and they did not keep the original. Time Life took the original the very next day. 
because the Pruder trusted Time Life, he 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 had a contract with Richard Stoley of Time Life, who said, "I promise to you, we will not use this film in order to uh, as a gore film. We're going to do it in a way that's very kind of uh, respectful. Mm -hmm. uh, we're not going to publish the uh, the very bloody frames, which they did not." And I think they put this in writing. So, so Zapruder was at least content that Time Life was going to do what the other reporters might not have done. Right. And so, um, so he didn't go for the highest bid, although he did make a good bit of money out of this. That's maybe another secret or taboo. Sure. He made a lot of money from this, but he probably could have made a lot more money and he tried to sell it to the highest bidder. Yeah. And so maybe Hornberger or someone would say, well, okay. They did that, but then they they recreated this process. They, they took the original from Time Life Flew it to DC, recreated this, and recreated the four copies. And so, any is there any evidence that Time Life ever lost possession of the film? Uh, no. the The very next day, it was flown to Chicago, and it was cut so that they could publish certain frames. In fact, some of those frames were damaged. So the film as a whole, uh, you would be able to see that there was some reconstruction done to it. Uh, because they actually accidentally damaged some frames by cutting it in order to be able to publish it. So the original out of camera film has these cuts and re, you know, re, re I don't know, retape together. I don't know how they do this. Um, so it, it has gone through a process of some, some fixing. And, and that's why you could probably detect which was the original, which was not. Uh, so there was always this time life copy that, that was kept there under time life, their ownership. That, as far as I know, was never was never taken by uh, by the government to be doctored. Certainly not in the weeks that followed. Yeah. Um, so there's a problem with the chain of custody here. Is that when people like uh, Mr. Hornberger, who gets his information from a very dubious source, now Douglas Horn, you would think, would be uh, an expert source because he was in the Assassination Records Review Board. He did some of the depositions himself. But he's kind of the only standout who says we've proven a conspiracy. Everyone else in that commission who were not asked to solve the Kennedy assassination, they were only trying to track down any evidence, release files, uh, collect, you know, photographs or films or whatever they could and release them to the public. Right. This is George Bush Sr. had passed this law, the JFK Act in 92, after all of this uproar with Oliver Stone's film. So the ARRB in their closing report said, well, we haven't found anything uh, that suggests that there was a, a conspiracy, but that, that wasn't, it was more like in their speeches after and articles, op-ed pieces that some of the commissioners did. Um, but their closing report did not suggest they found anything that could be like a, a smoking gun or a new bit of evidence on the assassination, except for Douglas Horn, who kind of, as we were talking earlier, always assumes that if something is inconsistent or some information is missing, it must be because there's a conspiracy. Or in some cases, trusting witnesses who have some kind of weird memory that's different than what we see on the Zapruder film, and then he interprets that as proof of a conspiracy. Right. And this gets to a, a point that I, I want to talk about for half a second, um, is the eyewitness testimony, not necessarily in Kennedy, uh, but in general. If you watch any or follow any amount of true crime that's not you know kind of conspiracy this true crime and you watch enough of it you will find over and over again that the witnesses sometimes they they, they remember something differently or um they can't the stories don't exactly match up mm -hmm. and i'm not saying that that doesn't 
I don't say that it means anything. It just means that it's got the common thread. Uh, and mm-hmm. so to say that these witnesses are are at odds or this evidence is at odds, possibly, um, it's worth exploring for sure. But it doesn't necessitate a conspiracy because it's a grand event. It just means that it's actually right in line with how everything else happens, which is it's not always nice and tight. Yeah, and Dealey Plaza is a great example. So many different people uh, did not necessarily agree on the number of shots they heard. Most said three. The vast majority said three. But there was a lot of disagreement on where the shots came from. And uh, I, I, I'm even learning some new stuff. I've been reading a book uh, by Larry Sturdivan. It's, it's an older book, but he talks a lot about the way that we, uh, we misinterpret the, the uh, direction of gunshots based on the fact that most of us will hear, uh, a, um, uh, what's it called, a, a hypersonic crack of the bullet breaking the sound barrier, but not where the gun is, in some other position that is closer to us. And by the time we hear that crack, uh, the bullet is somewhere else. So the sound comes neither from where the bullet actually is at the time we hear it, nor the place where it originated, which might lead people to think that they heard a bullet coming from the front or the back when it actually came from the left. Uh, so this is really interesting about how um, a lot of auditory memories sometimes are misguided because our hearing is not as good as our vision. And then there's all the case that a lot of people don't remember things the same way. Uh, some have better memory than others, but I spend several pages in my book talking about a woman called Jean Hill, the famous woman of the red raincoat that is uh, showcased in the Oliver Stone's film. Uh, she got more things wrong than right about what happened that day. I, I think I don't think she's earnestly lying. I think she was in shock and she ended up fabulating a lot of things. And her story has changed and evolved over time so much that has become completely different. Now, at the beginning, she said things like there was a dog in Kennedy's car. There, the Secret Service turned and shot back at the at the building where the shooter was. She said she saw a man running on on the grassy knoll. A lot of these things are disproved by photography or other witnesses or, or things like that. And then her story evolved and evolved over time. And that's where it kind of streamlines a lot of other conspiracy theories by reading other books, by being interviewed by people like uh, Mark Lang, David Lifton her story evolves so that by the 1990s, it sounds nothing like what she said in the 1960s. And she says that's because her deposition to the Warren Commission was doctored, but that's not true because before she gave that deposition, she said more or less the same story in front of the TV cameras. So now you have to doctor not just the Warren Commission, but all of the TV news programs, radio and television, uh, that actually recorded her saying nothing about a shooter on the grassy knoll in 1963. It's only much, much later that she come up with, with the story. So yeah, witnesses are not trustworthy, or at least different witnesses have different levels of, 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 of trustworthiness and memory. And we need to keep that in mind. You know, physical evidence needs to be interpreted, but you can't always say the physical evidence is wrong because there's a memory there that's different. Usually memory is the least trustworthy element. Yeah, and, and, and you know, thinking through this, um, different people have different I, I don't know if this is the right way to describe it but different levels of focus or attention or, or whatever like i'm startled quite easily my wife will startle me all the time because i am just off in my own world thinking about something and there's nothing else going on and so she'll come in and say something and i'll go ah you know i'm like try to be crazy that, that i do it but i actually can't stop because it's just the way that i work whereas she's a mom of four and so she's kind of you know always you know doing all this stuff and so she's probably not startled as easy because she's always getting interrupted in her thoughts and and what she's doing I imagine if me and her were both at the Kennedy um, event, you know, 
what we're doing would be different and how we perceive what happened would be different and just how our bodies return. And so you start factoring all this stuff in, it becomes quite hard to recreate, you know, who's, who's actually a bit, cause I would, I, I, I've been in an event where a gunshot went off and went supposed to, um, I was doing a podcast, uh, we're at a gun range, uh, it was indoor pistol range and I was, uh, preparing to do an interview and I was so intent that when the gunshot went off in the bathroom, 10 feet away in my mind, I thought a light had burst like an led mm-hmm. light. Cause I was so just, and then everyone got quiet. And then I, I looked up and I, re- and then I processed, oh my gosh, a gun just went off the bathroom. I think I was okay. Everybody signed, but, but in that moment, <laughs> I was so out of it, man, because I was so intense. Whereas people, other people. So, um, but you were in a gun range too. We're in a gun range too. Right. So you so, should have thought, Hey, it makes sense that there would be guns firing here. Yeah. Where we're at, not really. Cause it was around the corner and you could, oh, okay. I mean, this was like literally five, seven, 10 feet away. Like it's in the bathroom and it's in a closed bathroom. Oh, okay, it was okay. really loud, but I was just so trying to get this, this um, podcast or edited or set up or whatever I was doing. I was just so into it that when it went off, I didn't realize it wasn't, I mean, this is, you know, seconds, of course, I didn't yeah. realize going until everyone got so quiet because everyone's in the room just talking, you know, really oh, that, that roar. And then everyone got quiet. I'm like, oh, wow. <laughs> so, well, yeah. here's, uh, half a uh, dozens of people in Dealey Plaza thought they heard a firecracker when the first shot rang out. Right. No one's expecting a shooter. They're thinking this is a party. This is fun. Bang. And it was probably the bullet that missed and it may have ricocheted off something else. So there was a strange noise and most people didn't think it was a gunshot, except people who had been hunting and who knew what rifles usually sounded like. Right. Uh, the driver of the limousine thought there was a blowout. So mm-hmm. he he pumped the brakes. That's where you see the limousine slow down a little bit. Not on the Zapruder film, because Zapruder was panning and he was following the vehicle at the same speed, but uh, on the other films of that day, right? And, and maybe I can open a parenthesis here. If the Zapruder film is doctored, you would also have to doctor all of the other films and pictures that were taken in Dealey Plaza that day. One of the most photographed and filmed events of, of, of world history up until that time. Right. So that's a monumental task to do within a few hours of the assassination. Right. Okay. So anyways, I'm closing my parenthesis, but I forgot where I was going with this. That's okay. I want to talk about the, the autopsy. Okay. I think we've, I think we've put at least enough out there for folks who listen to oh. Horn. Go ahead on the film. Uh, there are a couple of things that I should mention. Maybe yeah. briefly, you can come back sure. on them or, or, or tell people. Uh, one thing is memory. Um, I, I interviewed for my podcast, another podcaster called Toby Ball. And maybe your listeners want to listen to this series. It's about UFOs. It's called Strange Arrivals, but it does take a skeptical view and it looks, particularly in the second season, at the evolution of how uh, UFO um, experiences, you know, kind of evolve and they get streamlined in a kind of a story that all the people who claim to have had an experience, suddenly their experiences change to become more and more similar over time. So uh, it's almost as if everybody has a different experience and then by listening to each other, go, oh, it could have been that. It must have been this. Right. So there's kind of a copycat element there. Uh, another thing I want to mention is also some of the witnesses that Mr. Um, uh, Hornberger used. Uh, there are four basic people, I think, that are claimed to have seen some kind of doctored Zapruder film, which no one else has seen. And there's no evidence of it. But they say these witnesses have. Now, um Two of them are yarn spinners. Uh, one of them was called Oswald LeWinter, who went to prison for doctoring fake CIA documents in order to try to convince, uh, what's his name, um, uh, Princess Diana's uh, boyfriend's dad, uh, Mohammed Al-Fayed, to try to convince him that the 
MI6 had murdered Princess Diana, whatever. So, so this guy is a hoaxer. That's one of the four witnesses. Another guy is a French reporter called William Raymond, who's also uh, clearly has a very inconsistent memory of, of how he saw this film. And I think what he saw was some kind of maybe a fourth or fifth film of that day. Tina Towner took a very kind of um, uh, a not a very good film, but of Kennedy's um, limousine doing a wide turn onto Elm Street, which is not on the Zapruder film. Uh, so he claims that there was parts of the Zapruder film that were removed. I think he's just mistaking it with some other films that were taken that day. And then the two other people were CIA employees, uh, Dino Brugioni and particularly Homer McMahon. He mentioned Homer McMahon in your interview. And these are two guys who were working in Washington who said, I saw a film that weekend in Washington at the National Photo Photography Interpretation Center, NPIC, uh, this was a joint CIA Air Force lab in Washington. Uh, what do you call it? like uh, not 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 uh, top secret? What was the word? Uh, not classified. Uh, they, they did aerial photography, you know, spy photography. They yeah. developed that for for the government. So obviously, it was a it was a laboratory where you had to sign, uh, you know, uh, uh, confidentiality agreements, things like that. They were employees of the military. So these guys said that they developed a film that was much more gory than the one that they see in the Zapruder film. But the thing is, the description that Dino Brugioni gives essentially is the same as the Zapruder film, minus maybe the frame where Kennedy's, you know, the, the, the blood squirts out of his head. So I think what happened is he saw the actual Zapruder film in 63, and then some years later, he saw the pictures in Time Life, and because they never published those really gory uh, frames, he slowly became convinced that there were two different frame, two different films in circulation. Whereas just that the, the, the magazine was trying to remove excess gore from, uh, from its publication. And then the fourth guy, and I'm going to finish with this guy, um, Homer McMahon, very, very interesting because his whole testimony to the ARRB is in um, uh, Mr. Hornberger's book. I notice it's one of the appendices. And I've printed part of this in my book. This is the part that he doesn't mention. He didn't mention it in your in your interview. Uh, Jeremy Gunn of the ARB was deposing uh, Homer McMahon about this uh, allegedly film, this this much more gory film that he had helped develop frames for on the weekend of the assassination. And McMahon, McMahon responds this to Jeremy Gunn. He says, look, I have senile dementia. I, I can't remember really anything. Most of my reflections are what I have recalled and remembered after the fact. In other words, I did it once, and then I recalled it and remembered it. I don't know how the mind works, but I don't know that, I, that I'm, not, I'm not okay. I'm a recovering drug addict and alcoholic. Do you know what a wet brain is? You're looking at one. I damn near died. And I'm not a competent witness because I don't have good recall, end quote. So this is what Homer McMahon said. It's pre-gaming. Exactly. He says, look, don't every what I remember, half of what I remember didn't happen. And half of what happened, I don't remember. And he says he has a wet brain. I, I looked this up. Uh, it's called Wernicke Korsakoff syndrome. And it comes from uh, a form, I think it's encephalitis or whatever. It's it's a it's a brain condition caused by usually drug abuse uh, that really destroys your 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 memory. So he says, don't trust me. This is the smoking gun of, of, of people like um, uh, Donald, uh, what's his name? Um, 
his name escapes me all of a sudden. Uh, he's he's the main source uh, that he quotes, uh, Douglas Horn. Right. So when that's your best witness, it means you don't really have you know a lot of evidence, particularly when that piece of evidence has somehow disappeared. Okay, that's that's so that's quite interesting. <laughs> so <laughs> let's talk about maybe not as, as much detail, but the autopsy photo. So because um, and, and to me, I'm I'm not a I, I'm I'm for your benefit. I don't know if I've ever even looked at the autopsy photos, so I'm not sure what the correlation in Zapruder film. I mean, I heard what Hornberger was saying, but is it do they do they match? Do they not match? Is there a reason people think they don't match? What's going on with that? Um, as far as I know, the autopsy photos have been found to be legitimate, not just by a number of different investigations, um, including the um, the House Select Committee of Assassinations, who published the report in 1979 who actually were looking for a conspiracy and the end using uh, faulty audio evidence said there was probably a second shoot on the grassy knoll, but no one saw him. He didn't hit anything and he disappeared. We don't know who he is. It wasn't the CIA. It wasn't the mafia. It wasn't, you know, the air force. It wasn't uh, a whole bunch of people. Uh, so they said there was maybe a conspiracy, but they couldn't figure out what it was. And it just turns out that there was bad acoustic evidence that had been interpreted as a, a, there was a shot from a different direction. So they were looking for a conspiracy, and that's the best they could come up with. There are different panels of scientists. We're looking at photographic evidence, audio evidence, and all of the other panels pretty much said, yeah, the Warren Commission was correct. Um, there were some things that were maybe missing or omissions or things that were sloppy because the Warren Commission was working under uh, a tight times, uh, time frame. The autopsy was done very quickly because... Mrs. Kennedy and Bobby Kennedy wanted it so. Uh, admiral Berkeley, who was not uh, a high, he, he was an admiral, but he was Kennedy's private, or not private, it, it was Kennedy's personal doctor. Uh, he was the one, he was the admiral in the room telling everybody to go quickly. Not because the conspirators were telling him to do that, because Bobby Kennedy was telling him to do that. Um, Kennedy had a bunch of physical ailments, that included uh, Addison's disease, so his adrenals were 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 destroyed. Uh, he was taking steroids. He was taking painkillers. Uh, he may have had venereal disease. Uh, that's what uh, Robert Dalek suggests. He's a very trusted historian of uh, of, of American presidents. Um, there was a lot of things wrong with Kennedy that the Kennedy family did not want the public to know, and that's why there was a military autopsy. So as they fly back from Parkland Hospital in, in Dallas and they go to Washington, on the way, Dr. Berkeley says, Mrs. Kennedy, the FBI needs evidence. They want to know if there's any bullet fragments in your husband's body. We need to do an autopsy. And she decides it's going to be the Navy, just because Kennedy was, uh, was, uh, he was he used to be a naval officer. And the best hospital to go to, if you wanted to conduct conspiracy, would have been the Army um, hospital in Washington, uh, which I'm trying to remember um, uh, its name, not Bethesda Naval Hospital, which was not equipped to do forensic autopsies. But it was Mrs. Kennedy who said, we're going to go to the Navy hospital. So the body gets taken. I mean, you would have had, if you were a conspirator, you would have had to have a, 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 a group of doctors ready to fix the body or photography in Dallas and in Washington and it turns out it would probably have been a different hospital than the one where Kennedy ended up. Well, and, and just on that, it sounds like you're actually alluding that there are conspirators and the conspiracy was to cover up Kennedy's 
health issues. <laughs> the conspirator, the conspirators right. are called Bobby Kennedy, Jacqueline Kennedy, and Doctor um, Burke. Right. But and they didn't want you know maybe his venereal disease or, or these other things about him to get out. Which yeah. And, and just just to be clear here, I, I know you may not be saying that as strong as I am. One of the issues that I like to point out when we talk about conspiracy theories is if you have a conspiracy, uh, in this case, that would be by definition people conspiring to do something. Then that's that's what you need to go with is, hey, this is actually a provable conspiracy. It might not be sexy. It might not be the one that you want, but it actually is a provable conspiracy, which is these people are conspiring to protect the integrity of JFK exactly. livelihood. Yes. That's a good and There's nothing wrong Assuming this is true, of course, there's nothing wrong with saying, hey, they conspired. That's conspiracy. I think more conspiracy people should focus on the things that are provable and not jump to yes. and not make these leaps. And so because it sounds like you're saying, hey, these they, I mean, it sounds like you just argued for a conspiracy. It's just one that no one actually cares about. Right. Exactly. It's not the conspiracy people want to hear about, but it's the one that we can prove. Right. Um, and that's why the autopsy material still today cannot be accessed by the public. I contacted the uh, the National Archives because I was going to go to Washington in June and I was not able to access them because I'm not a forensic pathologist and I don't have the approval of the Kennedy family. It still belongs to the Kennedy family and they're keeping a very tight reins on that material. It contains some pictures of Kennedy's naked body. Uh, mm -hmm. It contains a lot of other stuff that we haven't seen. A lot of those pictures have been leaked, but a lot of them are still there. So I, I know of some authors who gained access because they're doctors or they had they were there with like, I don't know, NBC or Nova, you know, PBS, then some investigations and they see the pictures, but they're not allowed to record them. They're not allowed to, to put them on TV. Uh, so some of them that we do have, the ones that are in my book are in the public domain because they were stolen by conspiracists um, and because they were taken by the Navy and they were not classified, they are officially public domain. So here, so we have a conspiracy there. It's not a sexy conspiracy. And I, I might not have time to go into detail with that. It's one of three conspiracies that did happen. The FBI were trying to cover up the fact that they knew about Oswald, but they didn't see him as a threat in advance. They were very lackadaisical in trying to figure out where he was, where he was living or working uh, leading up to the Kennedy's visit. Because they didn't think that a Marxist would kill Kennedy. They thought that the Ku Klux Klan would do it. Yeah. And so they were wrong. But uh, J. Edgar Hoover uh, really wanted to cover up the fact that they had really dropped the ball on Oswald. Right. And then there was another conspiracy, which was that uh, the CIA was trying to murder uh, Fidel Castro at that time with the full knowledge of the president and his brother. Uh, his brother preferred to organize a, a, um, a sabotage operation called Operation Mongoose. So that's what Bobby Kennedy was planning while the CIA were trying to murder Castro. So these are all the plots, the illegal plots that the Kennedy, uh, the Kennedy administration was involved in. And that's another thing they had to hide from the public. And that's why, to answer Mr. Hornberger, um, the former head of the CIA was in the Warren Commission. Alan Dulles was there on the request of Bobby Kennedy to keep a lid on the Cuba operations. Yeah, And that's one of the biggest failings of the Warren Commission is they did not delve into the links between Cuba and Kennedy that Oswald may have figured out about or maybe got some information from Cubans and decided to take matters into his own hands. Okay. Um, you've been gracious with your time. I just want to ask you a few more, we'll call them rapid fire questions there. Just, okay. Um, so 
Let, let's talk briefly about the Castro thing because we had Jefferson Morley on, and he yeah. talked about that in his book about the same day that Kennedy's assassinated, we're meeting with someone to assassinate Castro. That is a huge conspiracy that is of you know gargantuan proportions, and it should get a lot of attention. Um, so I'm glad you you I, I'm gonna reference all of this at the uh, show notes for Senior.com. We'll also link to your podcast that you mentioned. I have a chapter on Cuba in my book. Yeah. yeah. Okay, great. And the book, all of that will be there for listeners. So we're covering a lot of ground here. Let's talk about Oswald for just a second. Um, I think it's quite compelling that Jack Ruby, who murders Oswald, never says anything other than I murdered Oswald. You know, he's not tied up in some grand conspiracy and he has plenty of time to confess. Right. So it seems to me that Jack Ruby is just a, just a, just a dude that decides to kill Oswald and you know, dies. That that seems to be hard to argue against that. Oswald himself, I think Morley also in his book argues that the CIA knew about Oswald, and there were several groups that um, were CIA cover-ups operations in the U.S. that were, were tied up with Oswald. I'm a pretty fairly convinced that it's a lone shooter, that it was Oswald. Is there anything more to Oswald than he's just some crackpot who killed the president? Any reason we should think he's tied to the Russians, the mob, to the Cubans, to the KKK, whomever? Uh, I, I hesitate to call Oswald a nut or uh, a crazy guy or whatever. Um, he had dyslexia. He had some significant emotional trouble. He had some uh, some really bad mommy issues. Uh, he did have, I think, uh, problems of sexual impotence that his wife made fun of him on uh he was a wife beater uh there are a lot of things about oswald that are character flaws a lot of the people who knew him and were close to him like um george de morinchild who was one of his only friends said he was really bright uh mm. he he was a self kind of a self-taught guy he taught himself russian while he was in japan and with the marines uh he read a lot of books but like like any conspiracy theorist, and I think Oswald was himself a conspiracy theorist, he only read those books that fed into sure. what his beliefs were. So he became an avowed Marxist. Uh, he went to the Soviet Union and hated it. He had a problem with authority. He came back to the States. He hated it. He wanted to go to Cuba. They wouldn't let him in. And he had nothing left to lose when he came back to Dallas. His wife wants to separate him at that point. Uh, he's not even living with her. He's just visiting her and the kids on the weekends. Um, at, at Ruth Payne's house. And he's living in this tiny little rooming um, uh, boarding house, uh, not that far from downtown Dallas. Uh, and when he reads the papers, find out that Kennedy's coming to town, this is his chance to do the thing he's always failed at, is to, to be a somebody, to get some respect. He tried to assassinate General Walker, whom he considered to be a fascist. And he failed by by a millimeter. He or I don't know what's what's that in American uh, notation. Um, he he accidentally hit you know a, a piece of the window frame, and the bullet missed General Walker's head by a few uh, a few centimeters. Um, he apparently wanted to kill Nixon. Though it was probably just he had some kind of spat, and his wife locked him up in the in the bathroom to prevent him from going because she knew he had a rifle by then. And they moved to New Orleans because Marina didn't want him to get in trouble with the authorities. Uh, so they went back to New Orleans, where he was from. He spent the summer there, and there he becomes an activist rather than a uh, uh, a hunter of fascists. And he starts spreading uh, uh, pro-Castro literature. He kind of tries to infiltrate uh, anti-Castro groups, and he ends up getting arrested for a spat on the street. So he, he, in his mind, he's a political activist, but he's not aligned with the Soviets. He's kind of a, a friend of the Cubans though he has no direct connection, as far as we know, with Fidel Castro. 
if there is anything suspicious about Oswald, and I think this is where Jefferson Morley kind of takes it way too far than the evidence gives us, is that something happened in Mexico City that led Oswald to be uh, pushed, maybe even uh, told to go kill Kennedy. The problem is he was there in September and there was no evidence at that time that Kennedy was doing a was doing a visit to Texas. And even less that there was a, you know, the motorcade route was not set to go by the uh, the school book depository, well, you know, well after Oswald got that job. And he got that job from one of his wife's friend's neighbors, you know, like there's nothing suspicious about that. Mm -hmm. uh, the only thing that's suspicious is that he may have talked to somebody in the Cuban Circuit Service in Mexico, and they may just have said, look, we're not letting you into, into Cuba unless you show us you're a real patriot. And then at some point he got his chance. He he tried to get out of town, but we never found out what his motive was uh, specifically and where he was going. I don't think he knew where he was going because he had no plans. Uh, he couldn't drive a car. Uh, you know, he, he didn't have any set plans to get a Dallas just to evade the police. Or I think once he was arrested to, to become famous through a court case, mm. uh, he the the um, the lawyer he requested, which he never got, John Apt was a New York-based uh, lawyer who defended a lot of um, Marxists, uh, a lot of left-wing activists. So he wanted to have a very meditized court case. And I think that's why Jack Ruby killed him. Jack Ruby didn't know about that, but he knew that this guy was trying to get on the cameras and celebrate the fact that he killed Kennedy uh, for some, some obscure cause, which interestingly Jack Ruby thought was anti-Semitism. Because uh, he was Jewish. And it turns out it's the opposite because Oswald was not anti-Semitic. He was actually in favor of racial equality, uh, but he was a communist. But for Jack Ruby, they were the same thing. He didn't he was not um, politically sophisticated enough to understand the difference between extreme left wing and extreme right wing views. Um, okay. if sorry. You could have... oh, sorry, good. No, no, it's just I have a tendency to just keep going uh, and going. So no, it's great shut me up at some point. <laughs> if you could have one question answered about the Kennedy yeah. assassination that you currently, it's not clear. Um, what would that be? Oh, boy. That's a really good question. Um, I finished my book with the phrase, you know, I've stopped losing sleep over this. Because I think there were so many questions that I had that were answered that eventually I go, oh, is that all it was? Now, granted, there are these cover-ups, but they're not cover-ups to kill Kennedy and hide who did it. They're cover-ups to because of incompetence, because of a family dynasty, things like that, right? So obviously the things I'd like to know is what were those private conversations between Bobby and Jackie that are not recorded? What are those private conversations between um, uh, Lee Oswald and, and, and his family or, or, or friends, whatever, that, that are not recorded? Uh, a lot of things happen in private and a lot of people choose not to reveal things. Marina Oswald was very enigmatic because first of all, she she grew up in Russia, where covering up evidence could be like um, could be capital punishment, and she clearly has destroyed some evidence. There are pictures of Oswald in his backyard that no longer exist. We we have recovered three. Well, not we, whoever the the Dallas police or and some others found three different snapshots of Oswald holding a rifle in his backyard, which Marina took, and Philip Sheenan, a, a, a journalist, found out that um, there was a fourth picture that Marina and Oswald's mother destroyed the night of the of the assassination or the next day while they were in custody or they were 
the police was there, but they had access to uh, Oswald's materials where he's holding the rifle over his head, which certainly was going to be a very damning proof against him. It's not just, hey, look, I own a rifle. It's look, I'm no, I, I'm about to kill somebody. You know, like I, I think those back backyard pictures were not that different from, um, you know, those uh, suicide videos that, um, uh, you know, Islamic fundamentalists sometimes do before they go out and you know, make themselves blow up in a bus or something like that. It's a testament that they're standing up for the cause. And it's clear that Oswald, that taking those pictures, thinking, I'm going to kill General Walker. And when that failed, he had to kill somebody else. And Kennedy, I think, was the next best thing. I don't think he hated Kennedy. But if Kennedy's trying to kill Fidel Castro, then he becomes he becomes a, an appropriate target. Okay. You know, a lot of terrorists don't care about whether or not the person they kill is lovable or not. They They just figure they're part of the problem, so they're a legitimate target. Yeah, uh, we've talked about the Warren Commission uh, a handful of times now. Um, I know someone after the Hornberger uh, podcast reached out and said, you know, if there's nothing to hide, why not release the complete Warren Commission files? Um, I know you can't answer why they're not. You might have some thoughts on it, but will we ever see the Warren Commission files completely released, in your opinion? Or is this something we're all going to die and <laughs> never, never see them released? Um I can say about the Warren Commission files, a lot of um, a lot of exaggerations have been made about this idea that they deliberately covered up information for 75 years. The truth is that every government investigation in 19 at that time in 1964 that contained national security information, classified information, had to be classified for 75 years. So the Warren Commission did not say, let's lock this up for 75 years. This is what the law was in 1964. And the Warren Commission never had, there was nothing set up as a kind of a review process um, afterwards. So in other words, they just put the stuff in. It was meant to be classified for 75 years, not because necessarily it was dangerous to national security. It was part of a corpus of, of evidence that contained CIA, FBI, and other types of government so no one in the warren commission or in the johnson uh government said let's cover up the warren commission's information for 75 years they were just following the law um and in fact ironically lyndon johnson is the guy who passed the freedom of uh the freedom of access to information act which actually allows conspiracists and ufologists and people like that to petition to have some of these files released so files already started getting released in the 60s trickle and as far as i know there's what, a few hundred, a few thousand documents left that even Donald Trump uh, was 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 made to accept that it's a bad idea to release this stuff right now. And what we know of that stuff is we can talk to the people who have looked at it, like Jeremy Gunn, who was um, uh, the, the senior lawyer on the Assassination Records Review Board in the 90s. He says uh, most of that stuff is like documents that contain the names of informants who are still alive. So imagine people in Cuba or in Mexico City who had shared information with the CIA, who worked maybe, I don't know, in the Soviet embassy. If you release those names, them and their children could get murdered or could get imprisoned, right? Uh, it could be Russians, whatever. There are, there are people who could be in danger if it's found out that they collaborated with American authorities. The other thing is the IRS is a lot more stingy, apparently, than the CIA with documents. So a lot of these things are tax returns that the IRS is very, very careful uh, to have released. So a lot of stuff that's classified is often of a personal nature 
or it affects the safety or the potential safety uh, of, of organizations. I'm not saying that it ought not be declassified, uh, but everybody who's looked into this, and I, and I haven't had the time to look through this mountain of new information, except when something interesting comes up, but nothing has been a smoking gun. Nothing has suggested, hey, look, we found out that you know, someone helped Oswald kill Kennedy. Okay, so you mentioned the book, the podcast. Um, we're going to link to all this at com, so people go there. But where, what is the podcast? Where can people find the book? And then do you have any upcoming projects uh, that you want to talk about? Yes, okay. So uh, I'm a full-time uh, lecturer in a junior college uh, here in Montreal. So that's like 18, 19-year-old students doing their freshman studies before they go off to university. Uh, and I teach critical thinking. So that's my full-time job. I wrote this book over the last 10 years. It took a lot of time because I don't have a, a research position. So I had to kind of do it on my own time. Uh, and I have a podcast, which I do with one of my friends, Joanne Lijo, who works in the film industry. Uh, so we talk a lot about films. We talk a lot about uh, novels, uh, the news, and we do long form interviews with people of something interesting and intelligent to say about conspiracy theories. Uh, I am not, I am no longer a conspiracist as I, I think of myself more as a skeptic now. Uh, Joanne has lived in... Um, uh, authoritarian uh, not uh, Chile so he grew up under the Pinochet regime so obviously he has a few things to say about government conspiracies the real ones you know so we don't necessarily agree on everything but we're good buddies we've been together for together we've been friends for over 20 years uh, we have different zones of expertise and and we, I think we bring in a lot of interesting people uh, the first season is over we've talked about the deep state we've talked about uh, different religious groups we can call them cults like Scientology, um, uh, Jonestown, uh, those kinds of groups. So our, our interest is, why are people afraid of particular secrets and cover-ups? Uh, the podcast is called Paranoid Planet. Our website is www.paranoidplanet.ca. So there's no space and it's a CA for Canada. Uh, so you can see our, our, our shows there and it's available on Apple. It's available on uh Google, Spotify, iHeartRadio, all these other places. So, um, and I and I'm starting a, a new series this September uh, about my road trip in the states, trying to find out if Americans are as paranoid as the world says they are. And also, I'm going to do several episodes on Kennedy. So, uh, our friend Mel Ayton uh, should be one of my guests there, uh, along with some other uh, uh, famous authors. Uh, usually, I talk to academics and journalists. Uh, if conspiracists. People who have a conspiracy, what I mean by conspiracists is not people who are crazy. I mean, people who have a conspiracy-based explanation for an event. I'm very happy to have them on my show, but they tend to be reluctant to come on. Uh, they, 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 they don't like debate. They tend to just like to preach to the choir, which is unfortunate because the purpose of my show is I should have a conversation, not to, to badmouth anybody. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the thing I'll leave with is, uh, so first off, we'll link to all that. Thank you for that. Um, I think that, um, hopefully the listeners enjoyed this idea. It's quite uh, informative. In, I am very concerned about labeling things conspiracy theory just to make it where people don't talk about it. Right? Yeah. That's a very very dangerous thing. Which is why several times I said, "Well, hey, you just gave a conspiracy, which is the Kennedys are covering up that Kennedys mm -hmm. got all this terrible stuff." About him. And yeah. so we don't. So conspiracy theories, because rightly so, on some level, have given this kind of crazy people. But it's like you know. We have crazy stuff, and we can talk about disproving that. But there's plenty of conspiracies that are out there that are some controversial, some not. Um, and so it's 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 healthy to kind of go through these things and talk about it and say that you know what, um, 
I don't consider myself a conspiracy theorist. A skeptic is probably where I'm at. Um, I'm open to hear about stuff because to me, to, to shut it off would be would be um, a catastrophic mistake uh, because there are plenty of things that happen that aren't normal, that are out of order, um, and things that we don't even realize today that we, we'll look back 20 years ago and go, oh my gosh, this was actually... <laughs> we didn't realize they were doing that for this reason. So um, yeah. anyways, okay. We'll link to the podcast, link to the book, and all that stuff. Yeah. I appreciate your time today. Any final... I, I can point out, if you allow me, uh, yeah. in my book, I delve in a lot deeper in some of the things we weren't able to talk about today. Uh, the Zapruder film contains ghost images that really help prove its authenticity. Uh, a woman called Sandra Spencer, who saw some images of Kennedy's dead body, who are sometimes falsely attributed as autopsy pictures. I believe they were taken later on during the embalming process. That's why those pictures were relatively pristine, bloodless, uh, rather you know serene, as she describes them. Uh, and I think so there's a lot of misunderstandings about uh, a lot of the evidence, both the Zapruder film and the autopsy, which leads a lot of people to say, hmm, this must be a cover-up. And it turns out sometimes it's a misunderstanding. Absolutely. <laughs> there's 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 all kinds of stuff like that. So, okay. All right. Well, thank you for your time. We'll link to all of that in the show notes. And listeners, we'll talk to you real soon. Thank you. Okay. So there you go. What do you think about it now? Now that you've heard Hornberger, now that you've heard Michelle, what do you think about the JFK assassination? You know where to let me know. That's the newsletter, ryanracingyou.com slash newsletter. Sign up and be a part of the conversation.